Christianese podcast, episode number six, The Trinity. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was fully God. All things were created by Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and the life was the light of mankind, and the light shines in the darkness. Now the earth was without shape and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the watery deep. But the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. God said, Let there be light. And there was light. What is it that makes Christianity unique? The one thing that sets Christianity apart is who we say God is. That He is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and one God. The triune nature of God is the way that we understand the work and person of Christ, the work and person of the Holy Spirit and the Father, and the beginning point from which we understand all of creation and reality. The doctrine of the Trinity is absolutely foundational to Christian faith. But if you were to ask the average Christian to explain the Trinity, you would probably get a blank stare. And I don't mean that to be a harsh indictment. Because the doctrine of the Trinity is pretty complex. It's mind-bending, mind-melting stuff. But if God has revealed himself to us and has made himself known as triune, should we not in some way try to understand who he is? What I'm going to do today, to start off 2017, is to describe the Trinity in a simple way so that you can not only know who God is, but to know why God's identity changes everything in your life. Today's podcast is going to work in two kind of movements, if you will. The first movement is going to be the theology. It's the black and white lines that describe how everything works. Think of an orchestra. In order for them to play a symphony, they must all first have black and white sheet music that's rigid, that describes exactly what they must play. They all have to start with the black and white. So that's where we'll begin. Then, after that, comes the music, the color that fills in the black and white, that helps you understand how the Trinity works and why it matters. So we'll start with the black and white, and then we'll move to the color. In order to simply describe the Trinity, you only need to know three major points. Unity, equality, and distinction. Unity, that there is one God. Equality, that each person of the Trinity is fully God, and distinction, the three persons of the Trinity are not the same. They are distinct. So let's start with unity. There is only one God. This is shown in the Old Testament and the New. In Isaiah 45, I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. In 1 Timothy 2, 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And in James 2.19, you believe that God is one, and you do well. The unity that God is one is clear, abundantly so in Scripture. 
The second point, a quality that each person is fully God. The most evident one is that the Father is God. It's evident throughout the Old and New Testaments where God the Father is clearly viewed as sovereign Lord over all things. There's no doubt the Father is fully God. The Son is fully God. Not created, but eternally fully God. In Corinthians 2.9, in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is fully God. And the Spirit is fully God. 1 Corinthians 2.10-11 show his omniscience, how he knows all things, knows the mind of God. Psalms 139 shows his omnipresence, where he is in all places. And we clearly see his omnipotence in raising Christ from the dead and even saving us. In Acts 5, a man named Ananias lies to Peter. Peter says, Why has Satan so filled your heart that you would lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to people, but to God. And then you can go through the whole chapter of Romans 8 to see the benefits of the Spirit and how the Spirit is clearly shown to be God. So there is unity. There's one God. There is equality. Each person of the Trinity is fully God. And there is distinction, which means the Father isn't the Son, the Son is not the Father, and neither are the Spirit. This is most clearly seen in Jesus' baptism, where Jesus goes down into the water with John the baptizer, and he's baptized, and once he does that, you hear a voice from heaven, God saying, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit of God, like a dove, also came down. There was the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all three together, and all three distinct. Unity, equality, and distinction. Those three kind of make up a triangle that as long as you stay inside of it, you'll be okay. We don't understand how everything works inside of that triangle, but that's where orthodoxy lives. As soon as we try to break out of one of those barriers is when we find heresy. And I'm not using that word lightly. At some point in Christian history, someone has denied unity, equality, or diversity and broken off into a heretical direction where they completely misunderstand God, who He is, and how He works. You may be able to have those three boundaries, but how does that work? The way that our minds work, we always want to have some kind of description or analogy that helps us understand what the Trinity's like. Maybe the Trinity is like water. It can be liquid, it can be solid, or it can be gas, but it's always H2O. This analogy of H2O in its various states is very prevalent. It's something that seems so helpful. But, ah, it commits the heresy of modalism. Modalism, or Sibelianism, refers to a heresy in which God was the Father in the Old Testament, then He became the Son, then He became the Spirit for the Church. And while that sounds attractive for helping us understand the relationship between the three persons of the Trinity, it has some serious problems. For example, at Jesus' baptism, when the Father spoke from heaven and the Spirit descended from heaven onto Christ the Son, was that an illusion? The ice example sounds nice, but when you actually look at Scripture, you see that it can't be that way. 
every time the father and son interact or the spirit and son or the father interact, you would have to say it's some kind of illusion. God is not like H2O, which can be liquid, solid, and gas, because he would have to be liquid, solid, and gas simultaneously. Well, shoot. That's one analogy down. What about a symphony? Now, there are four groups of players. The strings, the woodwind, the brass, and the percussion. Each of these four groups uses instruments which have a family likeness. Multiple parts coming to a whole. It sounds promising. The first section is the woodwinds. And the Greek word for spirit is breath, and woodwinds are wind-blown, so we can extend this analogy a little bit. And then there's the brass, the big, bold-sounding, almighty brass. Large hallelujah chorus, big horns. That sounds very father-like. Okay, we're on a bit of a roll here. Then there's the strings. really different. It still sounded good, though, sun-like, with the big emotional strings. Let's put it all together and see what happens. It sounds really nice, but the problem with this analogy is that each person in the Trinity is fully God. The strings aren't the full orchestra. The brass isn't the full orchestra. The woodwinds aren't the full orchestra. They're only part of it. So that analogy doesn't work either. Our problem is that we are trying to use things in creation to describe the Creator. If you were to look at a painting, you could probably learn something about that artist, but not everything. You wouldn't understand who they are as a person, or a husband, or a wife. In the same way, you can understand some things about God by looking at creation, but not everything. Some of you may not like this, but think of math. It's the land of great adventure. A journey through the wonderland of mathematics. And stick with me here. You'll find mathematics in the darndest places. Watch. So let's start with a flat object. Let's say a square. A square has two dimensions because it has length and height. It can go up and down and side to side. When you add a third dimension, depth, you get dynamic objects. A square can come out and become a cube. A circle can become a cylinder or a cone or a sphere. Our problem is that we live in a two-dimensional world and we're trying to describe a three-dimensional object. 
So think about this. Think about a perfectly clear sheet of glass. It's not hard like glass. You could stick your hand through it. If you put your finger into that glass and your finger went through it, you would leave a circle. It would start with just a dot with the tip of your finger, and as your finger went further into it, maybe a widening circle. And then your hand, you'd have a big oval. That perfectly flat, two-dimensional sheet of glass would always be left with a two-dimensional hole where your arm went through it. Even though you're three dimensions, you would always leave something flat, like a circle. Now, imagine you are living on that sheet of glass. You're two-dimensional. And one day you see a circle open up in your world. And it begins with just a dot. And then it becomes a wider circle. And then a kind of oval shape. Imagine now that you are asked as a person living in that flat land to describe what a hand is. All of your examples would fall woefully short. It's like we're in a two-dimensional world and God is a three-dimensional being. We don't have the language or the understanding to fully comprehend what he is like. Thinking about the Trinity, you may say it's one plus one plus one equals one. It may be better to say one times one times one equals one. You're moving from an additional dimension to a multiplication. But while that may seem helpful, it still is not completely accurate. It's still a created example trying to explain the completely other creator. In Isaiah 6, when all the angels are flying around God's throne, the only word they can come up with is holy. The word holy means other, separate. He's completely something different than anything else. He's separate. The God of the Bible is not a Greek God that's like people that we can say, hey, he's just like us. He's something totally different. And it is at this point that most people just give up with the Trinity. They say this is a doctrine that they'll never understand, which is where I think it is absolutely necessary to talk about what God does as well as who God is. So here's where we add color and make this come alive. Everything God does is triune. The Father does through the Son by the power of the Spirit. Let me say that again. The Father does through the Son by the power of the Spirit. When God created everything, the Father spoke the Word, the Son, through whom all things were made and are held together by the power of the Holy Spirit. When God became man, the Father did it through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus lived the life we could never live, died the death that we all deserve, and then was resurrected three days later, that was the work of the Father accomplished through the Son by the power of the Spirit. When you were saved, it was by God's will, through the work of the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. When you pray, you pray to the Father, through the Son who has made a way for you to boldly approach the throne of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Romans says that the Holy Spirit teaches you how to pray, and even prays for you when you don't know what to say. 
Everything God has done in your life has been a triune action of grace. And if that isn't beautiful enough, let me describe triune love. It all has to do with glory. Now the word glory could be a podcast in and of itself, and it may be one day, but in short, to glorify something means to praise, to adore, or enjoy something. It's the difference between seeing something as beautiful and useful. To see something or someone as useful, you ask, what do they do for me? How do they make me happy? What do they give to me in this relationship? But when you glorify someone or something, you see them as beautiful, you ask completely different questions. You say, how can I spend more time around them? What can I do to further their joy? How can I show other people how beautiful this person or thing is? So when I say that God is all about glory, I mean the Trinity is all about glory. That the Spirit lives to glorify the Son, John sixteen fourteen. In John seventeen four and 5, the Son glorifies the Father, and the Father glorifies the Son. The three persons in the Trinity have for all of eternity been glorifying one another. Selfishness, self-centeredness is a kind of static living where everything begins and ends with ourself. The Trinity is not self-centered. It is not static. It's dynamic. Tim Keller, in his book Reason for God, put it this way, Each of the divine persons orbits around the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. That creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. The Greeks had a word for this. It was perichoresis. It's where we get our word choreography, which means to dance or flow around. Think of an old movie with a waltz scene in it where everyone is just spinning and flowing around one another. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, In Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing, nor a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, a drama almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. This three-personal life is the great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. God, at his very essence, is love, self-giving love. He is the truest love that exists. Not the love that says, what do you do for me, how do you complete me? But how do I give myself for you? And this dance, this flow, has been going on before time began. I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it is a fountain. God is a perfect community in and of himself. So... Why did God create anything? He wasn't lacking. He didn't need something to love. He didn't create randomly or impersonally through chaos or, or some cosmic battle where the remnants created everything that we can see. God created out of an overflow of love so that the perichoresis, the dance, 
might expand. But if you're thinking of an old movie where everyone is dancing and flowing in unison, imagine that someone in the center stops. They cease moving. They become static. Someone in a huge ballroom, when they stop, the whole dance falls apart. When man sinned, all of creation fell. Sin raked against the very fabric of reality. But God was not confused. He was not caught off guard. In Genesis 3.15, right after sin, he promises to send someone to destroy sin in what is called the Proto-Euangelion, the first gospel, the first utterance of the good news. And we have the story of the Old Testament where God is working through a specific people to reveal himself to the world as a light to all nations. And then he sends his son, Christ, who after his death and resurrection, along with the Father, sent the Holy Spirit so that those of us who are saved can know the mind of God, can learn how to pray, and can actually live in a way that pleases God. In other words, we can have orthodoxy and orthopraxy, things that are inaccessible to us unless the triune God moves towards us. And this is incredibly practical. I mean, think about the way that we define love. Is love when you follow your heart? Is love something you know when you feel it? Is romance something that completes you? No, love is a dangerous commitment. It is a absolute giving of self. Love may have some emotions that accompany it, but it's primarily in action, a commitment, because it is focused on self-sacrifice. Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. And God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Trinity shows us that love is an absolute giving away of self. And while we are made in the image of God, we are not God. We are not essentially love. We are unipersonal, not tripersonal. Our basic desire is not to glorify God or anyone else, but to glorify ourselves. It's not good for us to be alone. We need other people to encourage us, care for us, correct us, and point us towards God. The Trinity shows us that ultimate reality, our fullest life, is found in self-giving sacrificial relationships within a community that glorifies God. Paul in Acts 17 says, In God we live and move about and exist. While actually wrapping our minds around the nature of God is difficult. It gives us headaches. It makes us feel like our brains are about to melt and fall out of our ears. Seeing how he works and his fingerprints in creation is readily apparent. And once you realize that the Trinity is not an idea saved for dusty books in your pastor's study, but something that interacts with and fully 
vivifies everything you do. You will see it not as something that's difficult to understand, but something in which you live and move and have your being. It is essential to our belief. And as long as you have those boundaries of unity, equality, and diversity, and you understand the Trinity inundates everything, you have everything you need to spend an eternity getting to know and glorifying God. This has been a production of Fathom Magazine. To find out more, visit fathommag.com.